Romans chapter 8 is, of course, that glorious chapter that begins with those powerful words, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with those words, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's full of very encouraging and remarkable testimonies concerning God's grace towards us in Jesus Christ. And in the middle of it all, there's this lovely reality or realism, this truth about the Christian life and its challenges. That's what we're going to read. But even in those challenges, how the promise of God is our strength. So Romans 8, we're going to read at verse 18, page 1122 in our Bibles. Hear the Word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, we also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thus for the reading of God's holy word. Then to the Catechism, page 214 in our Forms and Prayers books, 214. It's Lord's Day 13 in your Trinity Psalter hymnals, it's page 877. So it's page 877 in the song books, it's page 214 in our forms and prayers books, we're going to recite together these two question and answers that deal with what we have just confessed concerning Jesus Christ in the Apostles' Creed. We said, we believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, our Lord. And what does that mean then, only begotten Son and our Lord? We will see what that means and how that is also a great encouragement on this day as we have heard the profession of faith of Antony and Hannah and their baptism of their family We'll see something of the significance of that also in Lord's Day 13. So then why is he called God's only begotten Son when we also are God's children? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. And then why do you call him our Lord? Because, not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood, He has delivered and purchased us, body and soul, from sin and from the tyranny of the devil, to be His very own. 
as the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have a unique uh, coming together of church events today, this afternoon, and the uh, joining into membership of, of the Hanemeyer family and then our study of Lord's Day 13. Because in Lord's Day 13, we have something of uh, an explanation for what we just saw. For surely we saw something of what Lord's Day 13 speaks of, of what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, when we speak of Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, words that maybe at first don't immediately resonate with this moment, with this event, when we consider the theological significance of Christ's being the only begotten Son of God, when we think about the implications of adoption as it's found in the Word of God and its significance for the believer our minds might not have immediately gone to consider this lovely scene, this reception of a family into our midst. But I'm sure that even when we read or confessed that Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son of God our Lord, our minds probably didn't go either in the direction that the catechism did as it teaches us the meaning of these words. For the catechism really does show us the deep significance of this confession for us in a way that we probably wouldn't anticipate, that we wouldn't expect. And yet, by doing it, really does open our eyes to see something of the wonder and the love, not only of what we say when we confess these things, but of what we've witnessed this morning, or this afternoon, rather. For just consider that opening confessional statement of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. What does it mean that Jesus is the only begotten of our Lord. Now there's a, a word that theologians spend some time debating and discussing. The generation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal generation of Jesus Christ, never having a beginning, but always being begotten of the Father. There are some deep theological concepts here that are valuable and worth reflecting on, particularly if you, like we, have the privilege of being able to witness to Jehovah's Witnesses. They come to the door and they talk to us about their faith and they want, to talk, they want us to become members of their church. We, of course, want them to become members of our church. And one of the very key points that you debate with Jehovah's Witnesses over is the eternal begottenness, the only begottenness of Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is value in reflecting and reading on the deep theological significance of Jesus Christ's being the only begotten Son of God. And yet, the catechism doesn't go that way. Not because they didn't know about Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses is a very ancient heresy long before uh, uh, the, the catechism was written. But because the catechism has a concern for our comfort. Always has an eye for the pastoral significance of what we believe. Wanting to build us up so that our faith might be encouraged and strengthened. Comfort really has the idea of strength in it, doesn't it? When you are comforted, you are strengthened. Then the grief or the sorrow or the fear that causes you to be weak 
is dissipated and what remains is strength to serve. And how do they want to encourage us in this question? They say, why is He called God's only begotten Son when we also are called God's children? He is the Son of God. Surely He is the Son of God. But we're the sons and daughters of God too. Why is He then the only begotten Son of God? Why that adjectival phrase? Why is there a distinction in the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Father and us, His family? That's what the catechism focuses on. It focuses on the question of relationship. It focuses on the question of our relationship with the Father and upon what basis, by what confidence, we as God's people can relate to Him who claims us, who the water of baptism declares claims us as His children. That's what we just saw. All of these Hanemeyer children have all been claimed by the Father. You are my sons. You are my daughters. On what basis? On what basis? Do we make such a profound and such an encouraging claim? Well, the simple answer, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, is this, that Jesus' bond with the Father is unique. It's distinctive. It's different than anyone else in all of creation. For He is the eternal, natural Son of God. That is, He is God has always been God. For there was never a time when the Son was not. And He's true God, one in essence with the Father and the Spirit, though distinct in His person. But, says the Catechism, your and my bond with the Father is different. We are not eternally God. We are certainly not in nature God. We are creatures who have been graciously drawn into the family of God by His redeeming work. By something He's done. By His choice. By His plan and power. By His Son, Jesus Christ. Our relationship with the Father has been secured. So that our relationship with God is not the same as that of Jesus. At least, not exactly the same. He is the natural Son of God We are dependent upon His grace. We are adopted children of God. Now that may seem obvious to say and to hear, but it's so very important to remember. It's very important to remember both because it makes us marvel at what God has done, and keeps us ever dependent on Him. For consider what it means to be adopted. Adoption is something that happens when someone is brought from one family into another. So they'll have a biological dad and mom, somebody that brought them physically into this world. But then they will have a dad and a mom who have chosen them chosen to draw them into their love and to raise them in a loving environment. So adoption means that we've gone from one family into another. 
Now that can be a hard truth if we've been adopted. It can be a humbling truth to hear that there was a family that we were in, but who didn't accept us. And it's humbling because we all want to be valued on the basis of our own worth. We want people to love us because we're worthy of love, because we are valuable in ourselves. We want them to think highly of us because we can accomplish great things. And when we are adopted, it suggests, it feels like it suggests that someone said no before someone else said yes. That someone said, we don't accept you for who you are. We don't accept what you can do. And that we were ultimately only accepted because someone somewhere had a big heart. But think now of adoption not in human terms, but in redemptive terms. Think of it in the story of God's work. Keeping in mind we were all born initially into God's family. That is, God, when He made us, made us sons and daughters. Image bearers, that's the language of the Bible, but an image bearer is someone that reflects their parent. You could see in all of the Hanemeyer children the image of their dad and mom. You can see they belong to this family. Well, we reflected our loving Father. Oh, He loved us with a perfect love. It wasn't He who rejected us. It was we who rejected Him. We left the family of God and joined ourselves to a family of sin. We fled from the place of blessing and entered into the place of pain. The family we were adopted out of was the family of love and of joy. The family we were embraced into by our rebellion is a family of wickedness and rebellion. It is not a nice family to belong to. Indeed, we need to be convinced of that. We do. We need to be convinced that we have been adopted into the church of Jesus Christ out of a family that is cruel, that is harsh, that is destructive in so many ways. When we are born into this life, we are born into the family of sin. A family that leaves us with relational divisions. With moral depravity. We see this in the culture all around us. We see it in our own lives. Sin is deceitful. Keep in mind, the devil is the father of lies. And even though sin tells us that living in sin is good and will make us happy and healthy, the truth is is it wounds us. It grieves us. It breaks us down and oppresses us. And it is no family we want to be a part of. Consider how meaningless life becomes. Consider how directionless directionless life becomes when we give ourselves over to the emptiness of a life lived in sin. And that's just on this earth. 
eternally things get even worse. When we live in the family of sin, we have no hope of eternal blessedness. Even if everything in this life were to go tickety-boo, no struggles, no burdens, on the moment of our death, we would face the holiness of a God whose righteousness would condemn us. And we would spend eternity under His wrath. That is our natural condition. That is our personal choice as sinners. That is who all of the Hanemeyers, who all of us have been born as. That's the family we belong to, you might say, biologically. We're born into that family. What a grief it would be if we were kept in that family. But you see, God in His great mercy has done most wonderfully for us. God's only begotten Son, His most precious possession, His most beloved, who didn't need to do anything to impress His Father, who didn't need to do anything for His Father to love Him, The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were eternally happy with each other. Eternally blessed. Eternally in love. And then we decided to rebel against them. What would you have done in that instance? What would you have done to those who rebel against you if you'd given them such blessedness and and benefits, if you, if you in, in, in an act of great charity decide that you want to help some family out in the community that's lost their place, they couldn't pay their mortgage anymore, so you buy them a house, you put them in it, and you say you don't even have to pay any rent, you just get back on your feet. And that family then tears the house down, ruins it, destroys it. That family then takes you to court and sues you for it. That family spits on you and you walk by saying you treated them so cruelly. What would you do to a family like that? And we do so much worse to God as sinners. And God didn't need us. He didn't need to send His Son to save us. The Son didn't need to take on flesh to redeem us. To pay the price for our adoption was absolutely not necessary for the only begotten Son of God to do. And it was the heaviest possible price He could pay to bear the cup of His Father's wrath. Ah, but the only begotten Son of God took on human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He paid the debt for us. And in paying that debt, adopted us, purchased us into the family of faith, into the family of love, into the family of blessedness. Our security is eternal because it's Jesus Christ's blood that purchases us. It's the blood of Christ that is symbolized in the water of baptism. It is our lives that are drawn into a fellowship of love and mercy where our failings are forgiven and we are strengthened daily by a Father who so tenderly loves us that He knows how to strengthen us even in our weaknesses. Our spiritual, emotional, personal, social, and physical blessings from this Father are countless. 
with great patience and tenderness, with endless love and grace, He equips and enables His children to grow and mature and to develop a love for Him, to experience His blessedness, to rest in His grace. We become finally, genuinely human in Christ. Those who glorify their Creator, who love their neighbor, who worship their God. What a privilege it is to be adopted into the family of faith. To know remarkable love and security, a security so certain we can flourish under its care. Stability and security so crucial to our development and growth. We finally can live, broken sinners that we are, faltering and failing as we do, because we are loved with a perfect love in the Father. A love that must forever be precious to us. Oh, never forget that. That is so often what the church loses sight of. That is so often what we as children lose sight of. As children, we have this tendency growing up in our homes to think that dad and mom, well, they're a little bit narrow-minded. They're a little bit too strict. They don't know really what's beneficial to us. We, we push against them. We rebel against them. We don't listen to their rules. We kick against the walls that are set for us because we want to be free. We don't think dad and mom really know what's best for us. And as Christians, we can do the same thing. We can be baptized in the faith and we can be raised in the Christian church and and we can begin to think, but there's better blessings elsewhere, surely. We know better. The history of redemption is full of this. It's not just our own experience that teaches us this. It's not just the state of the modern church that teaches us this. It is the history of redemption that teaches us this. We can lose sight of just how precious a gift is the grace that is testified to in baptism that grace that we embrace in our profession of faith, we can lose sight of just how precious it is in this fallen world. Which is why it's so important that we not only acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, but that He is our Lord. And here again, I think the catechism takes us in a direction we don't expect. Because when it says that Jesus Christ is our Lord, the catechism you would imagine, you would expect, would emphasize that demand of God to obey the Master. For that is what Lord is. He's the one who owns us. He's the one to whom we are enslaved. You think of the Apostle Paul who repeatedly in his letters describes himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And you'd think the catechism would now take the time to say, listen, people of God, you have been purchased, you've been adopted into this glorious family of love, this wonderful family of blessedness. It ought to make your mind real at the thought of how much God loves you in Jesus Christ. And so you'd better live your life well. You'd better obey Him. He is your Lord. Bend the knee before Him in obedience to His will. And that is, you understand, a necessary encouragement. We all need to be repeatedly reminded of our need to obey the Father. Indeed, sometimes this very aspect of the faith is forgotten. There was a very well-known 
controversy early 1980s or in the 1980s around there called the Lordship Controversy in which the North American church particularly wrestled with the question of whether a Christian could, dis- could call Jesus uh, their Savior but not their Lord. Could a member of the church be saved who says, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I refuse to live my life in obedience to Him. I call Him Savior, but I don't call Him Lord. And it becomes important then to understand what lordship means and how we are obligated to walk in obedience to Him. And it is not an easy thing to understand. Even in our own midst, we struggle with this as individuals, as as Christians, as parents, as, as community. How do we balance the call to faith and the assertion that it is only by faith, by faith alone, said the Reformation, that we are united to Jesus Christ and counted as justified in His sight? How is it that you can emphasize, maintain the exclusivity of faith and yet still demand that people obey? Still demand that you have to live righteously before the Lord. We, we sometimes get those things mixed up. Sometimes we underemphasize faith. Sometimes we underemphasize righteousness. So what's the answer, Heidelberg Catechism? Teach us how to deal with this catechism. This is what you'd expect. And it doesn't do that at all. Why do you call Him our Lord, we're asked? Because not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood. He has delivered and purchased us body and soul from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be His very own. The catechism doesn't talk about how you have to obey. It doesn't need to. Because if you understand what it just said, you will obey with every part of your being. It just holds up for you the glory of Jesus Christ. And says, do you understand what it means to belong to this company of the redeemed? Do you know what it means to be counted as a member of the covenant community? Do you understand what it means to be able to have that peace that passes understanding? Not with gold or silver. That has never been enough to satisfy God's wrath against our sins. Though people have tried repeatedly in the history of redemption to win God's favor with their gifts to the church, to their building massive churches, to their accomplishing great things before the kingdom of God, but not with gold or silver can you save your soul. Only by the precious blood, the most precious blood, the incarnate, perfectly obedient, righteous Son of God who voluntarily sent or came into this earth that He might nail His flesh to the tree. Only that precious and eternal love of God in Jesus Christ is sufficient to forgive all of your wickedness and rebellion. And the payment that Jesus makes is to the Father. Notice that. He doesn't pay the devil. Even though you're under the tyranny of the devil, that's our choice, not the Father's. It is the Father's wrath that must be satisfied and that wrath is paid in full. Paid in full so that you may never fear. That you may say with great confidence, In the words of the Apostle Paul, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. That you can say absolutely and without a doubt, 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think of it, people of God. Think of what it means. You have received the water of baptism, the assurance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Word of your triune God to you that says this grace is for you. You have been freed from the tyranny of the devil. For sin is cruel. It is tyrannical. It does not bless. It does not heal. It only harms. But the Lord's yoke, Jesus' yoke is easy and light for He is gentle and lowly in heart. He carries the lambs in His arms. He does not quench the smoldering wick or break the bruised reed. So tender, so gracious and kind a Savior and God. What a blessedness is to know this, our identity in Christ especially in a culture such as ours where where value is found almost exclusively in your abilities, in your successes, in your attractiveness, in the way that you present yourself to the world. Accept me for who I am, the modern man says. And in such a world, failure is inadmissible. You always have to look like you have it together. You always have to be happy. Isn't that why so often we find these Instagram influencers whose constant reels are filled with joy and happiness and success and are suddenly reported as having died, taken their own life. It's stunning to us. They seem so happy. They seem to have it all, we say. Oh yes, from the world's point of view. Yes, from the world's point of view. But we have been redeemed into a family where our value is not found in who we are, in what we can accomplish, in what we do accomplish, but in our having been purchased by the most precious of all costs, the very blood of Jesus Christ. In the face of our sins, in the face of our failings, that we are so hesitant to ever speak of or mention or address, The Lord speaks a word of forgiveness and cleansing so that here is a place, unlike the world, where you can acknowledge your failures and find healing. And here is a place where you can be encouraged and equipped by grace so that you might bear up under the burdens and challenges of this life. So you might carry on to the end for your eternity is secured by this very blood. There is no drop of that blood shed on the cross that is wasted. For all who receive that blood surely attain to eternal life. And so we see, we experience a wonder of grace when we devote our thoughts and hearts to the words of the catechism's treatment of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we can only ever say in response to that, Lord, here I am. Can you imagine someone who has truly understood the riches of this confession saying to God, but I'm not really interested in living for you. I mean, it's not possible. The King who has redeemed us from the guilt of sin redeems us from its power into which He pours out His, into our hearts in, uh, or redeems us from His power by His pouring out His redeeming Spirit into our lives. 
And though our spiritual growth will take time and will continue at the slowest pace until the day we die, as surely as it's begun, the Lord will finish the work that He has begun in us. For we are living branches grafted into Jesus Christ. And we bear fruit to the glory of His name. So that the call to bend the knee in service to Christ, while we never perfectly fulfill that call, and we stumble far more than we succeed, it is for those who know this Savior, the joy of their lives, and the opportunity for them to say thank you to a God who has purchased them for no reason but His grace. So that whatever we say about obedience, and right and about right and about wrong, about what should be and what shouldn't be in the Christian life. This must forever be true for all of us. That to live the Christian life, to be obedient to God in Jesus Christ, is our joy, our thanksgiving, our only answer to so great a gift as this. It is to be a child of the Father is to know a love so rich that it demands the response of our whole being. It demands the response that Paul describes in chapter 12 of Romans when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what we confess every time we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, our Lord. We confess that we have been adopted into the family of faith. We confess that we have been purchased by a great and glorious Master who gave of His own blood that we might live. We confess a God so glorious and great that our lives can only be offered in gratitude to Him. Which is exactly what we saw this morning or this afternoon, isn't it? When the Hanemeyers stood and they asked, were asked the questions, their answer was yes. Yes, this God, this God, we want to love and serve. He is our God and we are His people. And then to hear each one of their children's names declared as the Lord claimed them and gave them the sign and seal of His covenant. Oh, to know that He is the only begotten Son, our Lord, is for us a source of greatest comfort and encouragement. That we may know this God and may know this Savior that we may go into this week confessing Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord, is for all who know the truth of these words, the greatest privilege of all. And let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Father, what a gift is 